what's up everybody welcome to the friday show it's your weekly wildfire update it's the hot shot wake up there's all sorts of stuff going on right now in the nation alaska being the busiest but other places are starting to pick up we'll cover everything operationally here at the first part of the show then as we move on we'll talk about granite mountain and the yarnell incident and some of my thoughts revolving around that fatality fire. And then with Independence Day coming up on the 4th of July, we're going to have a conversation about to firework or not to firework, as the media is putting out all sorts of articles saying how everybody across the nation should cancel fireworks, and we should move to safer options, greener options, and options that are not prone to wildfire. Some cities are saying to hell with that, and some are capitulating to these demands, and we're going to go over what's going on with that. Basically, there's a large push right now to cancel the Independence Day celebrations, and as you know, or maybe you don't know, but I'd be surprised if you didn't, Over the last couple years, they have been canceled because of this COVID pandemic. And now they're saying that it's too environmentally unsafe to have these celebrations this year. So we'll go over that, talk about what those talking points are and how folks are now asking everybody to celebrate our independence. There'll be some other stuff in there as well, some personal stories. But first, we got to get to the operational update. So in the nation, we are currently at a national preparedness level of two. It's been sitting here for a very long time. Alaska is at a PL5 now, the highest level possible. They have an absolute wild rodeo going on up there in Alaska. There are fires everywhere. The next couple days, it's forecast dry lightning. And it's looking like it's only going to get busier. The southwest is down to a PL2. The Great Basin at a PL2, the Southern Area, Northern California, Southern California, all at a PL2, and the Northwest, finally on the SIT report and reporting some large fires, actually, is on the list now, but still at a preparedness level one. In the last 24 hours, there was 158 new wildfires in the nation. There are 15 uncontained large fires currently. And 56 fires are being managed for resource benefit. And in layman's terms, they are just letting it burn. Getting into the specifics, up in Alaska, we'll start with the new complex, which is the Bean Complex. This complex has five fires in total. It was six, but two of the fires have grown together. This complex is being managed by the Bureau of Land Management up in Alaska, and the Alaska State Forestry and Fire is also joint managing these incidents. This complex is burning in a black spruce forest, and they're saying it's in an area where it hasn't seen fire in about 50 years. If you look at the fire maps of what's currently burning up in Alaska, and you compare it with ones from the past... A lot of areas that are burning aren't the typical areas that burn up in the big state of Alaska. And the places that typically burn in Alaska are not seeing 
as much fire as they used to. So we're seeing some areas up there in these wildernesses that haven't burned for what would be the lifespan of stand replacement trees. And now we are seeing that fire start to push through these areas after 50 years. On the bean complex, all the fires but one are using point protection strategies, basically tickling the edges and where there are values at risk and structures. They then do point protection, which is probably putting in some sprinklers and burning around these structures. But one fire, the Hutlinana fire, H-U-T-L-I-N-A-N-A, is the fire on this complex, the bean complex, that is full suppression. They have 132 firefighters currently on it. In the last 48 hours, they've seen very large growth on these fires. In 24 hours, 50% of the acreage of what the fire is is within the last 24 hours. And the total acreage on that is 64,100 acres combined, a cost of $2.7 million, and that complex is 0% contained. Next up is the Clear Fire. On the Clear Fire recently, there has been really, really poor visibility. A lot of these Alaska fires have been struggling with visibility over the fire and on the fire. But on the Clear Fire, aircraft have been grounded due to the smoke and visibility issues. There's a ton of smoke in the air, and they're not getting the clearing that they want to put these aircraft back up in the air. So in that case, on the Clear Fire, they have started launching drones, and they are using these drones for scouting and reconnaissance missions, and basically uh, substitute light for air attack over the fire, and giving crews an opportunity to see what's over the next ridge and what's going on in the next drainage. Uh, the weather forecast for this clear fire and most of these fires we're going to talk about, they're not too promising when it comes to suppressing these fires. So they're saying they are expecting the next couple days into the weekend that they will be high 80s up there in Alaska and the RHs are going to be in the 20 percentile range. The big one, though, is over the next couple days, they're also expecting a dry lightning storm to pepper the state. And that's expected both today and tomorrow. So I'm guessing there's going to be a large amount of new starts coming here up in Alaska. The Clear Fire is currently 23,512 acres. The cost is $1.8 million, and there's 317 people on this fire. And they're calling that one 8% contained. Now, one that we've talked about before up in Alaska, it's still growing. It's the largest one up there. And that is the Lime Complex. That complex has 18 fires being managed in it. And out of those 18 fires, they have staffing on eight of them. And 10 of those fires are currently unstaffed. There's no firefighters on 10 of those fires. They are expecting substantial growth on these fires again over the next 48 hours. With red flag weather and red flag warnings being issued for this area. On the Lime Complex, the Alaska Green Team has now taken over this incident, and they're logging it as 602,000 acres. There's 175 people on it, and $6.3 million in total cost. Now remember some of these numbers as we talk about other fires that we discuss later on here, specifically in California 
and other places. But this lime complex is already double the size of Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak, and it's expected to grow even more. I wouldn't be shocked if we see 800,000 plus on this thing before the rains come up there. Another fire up there that's seen a lot of activity and a increase in resources that are being brought to it is the Minto Lakes fire. They requested and have received a Type 2 team. So the Minto Lakes fire in Alaska is now a Type 2 fire. And the Northern Rocky team that came up, the Type 2 team, is shadowing the Central Oregon team that has been running this incident, and they will be taking it over shortly. As of right now, dozers and crews continue to put in line. And the big concern there is there's a subdivision that's in front of the fire. And as of right now, it's still eight miles from that subdivision. However, some of these fires in Alaska are moving two, three miles a day. So if you look out and you zoom out and you take the bird's eye view of this incident, depending on weather, that eight miles could either buy you two or three days or it might buy you four to six days, all dependent on winds and weather that are coming in to the area. Right now, there's only 45 people on the Minto Lakes fire, but that is changing quickly. They've ordered all sorts of more crews and resources to this fire. They're calling it 10, oh, excuse me, 20,250 acres, 0% contained, and they don't have any costs yet reported on that, but I'm sure we'll see it in the millions as a Type 2 team is taking this over. The last one we'll talk about up in Alaska is the Poor Man Complex. This, again, is a new complex up in Alaska. They're saying it's 23,000 acres, and that is spanning across three separate fires. Right now, 12 smoke jumpers are on the incident. They jumped this initially. They've ordered the Baker River hotshots. They are on their way to this incident. By the time you're hearing this, they might be on scene. And they've also ordered an additional crew on top of that. This incident is looking for a Type 3 team. This has been ordered, and they're expecting the team to be in place by July 2nd. All in all, Alaska is still incredibly busy. I can't cover all the fires that are up there. The majority of them are unstaffed. And if you look at the list of fires currently active in Alaska, it's just page after page of fires that are thousands of acres, unstaffed, being monitored, with most of them expected to grow substantially in the next couple days due to the weather that's moving into the region. All right, enough about Alaska. We're moving to the Great Basin, also known as Region 4. They've been increasing in activity the last couple days. The big one that popped out there was the Goshute Fire. This was outside of Wendover. If you don't know Wendover, it's a border city of Nevada and Utah, kind of where the salt flats are, where people race their land speed record vehicles, that area, but it's not in the salt flats. It's in a mountain range where there is timber, juniper, sage, and grass, and this thing ripped, and it's still causing some problems. Right now, the Elta Hotshots, Logan Hotshots, Idaho City, Sawtooth is up there. Bunch of Hell Attack folks. I know Boise's up there. Some other Hell Attack folks are working this fire. Right now, they're saying 2,000 acres. And what's going on 
on the Gashud fire is it's horrible, horrible terrain, rocky, steep. They shuttled all the crews up to the top of the mountain where they've been spiking out and they're trying to anchor and flank, pinch it off. But what's going on is there are some areas where they've decided, hey, we're just going to line strips of retardant down this incredibly steep, rocky, with sparse fuel areas, and it's holding, but they keep getting thunder cells and storm systems pushing through. They get outflow, downburst winds, and that's blowing the fire out across these retardant lines where they then have to reassess and figure out how to hold this thing. Knowing that it's still June, it's late June, but it's still June and multiple hotshot crews, tankers, and hell attack with buckets are struggling to hold this thing. That tells me that Region 4 is in for it in a couple weeks. As we've talked about, they had a very healthy grass crop, but now they've had 90 degree weather, low RHs, winds, and everything's drying out very, very quickly in Region 4. And the fire managers out there and the resources, boots on the ground, are saying it could be big. If we get starts, it could it could be off to the races. That Gashute fire is 20% contained, and that's probably the base or the heel of the fire that's been put out, but this thing is still pushing on the head. There's 295 people on this fire, and the total cost is $1 million. Also in Region 4, the Left Fork fire, this was the escaped pile burn that was in Utah. They sat on it for a while and had some red flag days. It blew out. That fire is, I don't want to say it's done, but it's pretty much done. They got some precip on it. This is an area near Panguitch, Utah. A beautiful country if you've never been there. Some aspen stands, sage, and grass. They're calling it 83% contained at this point in time. There's still 681 people on this fire that's 83% contained. A lot of them are probably getting close to being timed out at this point. And the total cost of that fire is $10.5 million. Last up in Region 4 is the Sugarloaf Fire, which was in the Twin Falls District up in Idaho. Now, when this thing initially popped, I didn't think it was going to go as big as it did because there still is some green grass up in Idaho. But it seems like these fine fuels are receptive to fire at this point in time. And with a little bit of help from the wind... This fire went 5,000 acres in less than 24 hours and just ripped through the grass. Um, there's some photos out there where they boxed it in with retardant and mostly kept it hemmed up on the flanks and were able to corral this thing in. But again, it shows that even up north in Idaho, they are seeing IAs now go thousands and thousands of acres. Moving on from Region 4, we go down to the southern area. We'll just touch on one down there that most folks have heard of. It's the Dempsey Fire down in Texas. This thing moved very, very quickly. Grass, brush, it was on ranch land. It took off. It jumped a river. And then they started bringing in heavy equipment and crews from out of region. Jackson Hotshots went. A bunch of heavy equipment operators and dozer operators hit me up and, and said that they were heading this way. And they basically ran dozer line up the flanks to try to catch this thing. They did get a little bit of precipitation on it. I'm not going to say that this fire is done, but it's probably very close to being done. It's being reported 
at 55% contained. There's 254 people on it. No costs yet, but that's not surprising coming out of Texas. And the southern area is still seeing some fire activity. As we move on, almost wrapped up here, we have Northern California on the map. The Rices Fire near North San Juan, California, started a couple days ago, kind of late afternoon in a steep, really rocky, shitty drainage, and took off. Fast-moving fire. They are saying at least one structure has been burned. Tall Manzanita, just everything you hear about Northern California, that's what this is. And some shot crews who have been sitting and hanging out for a while, El Dorado, Mad River, and others have been sent to this fire. Now, here's where I'm saying earlier when we were talking about Alaska to remember the numbers on Alaska, because listen to the stats on this fire. And it's understandable because it's California. But as a comparison, it's, it's amazing. So they're calling this fire 904 acres. It's 10% contained. There are 1,000. 79 people on this fire, 34 crews, 158 engines. Current cost is $3.7 million. By the time this is over, I'm thinking double-digit millions. You'll see high teens, maybe even $20 million on this fire. And compare that to a 600,000-acre fire with a couple hundred people on it up in Alaska with the same cost. That's typical. That's standard for California. They throw everything at it. And they did do a great job catching it small, a lot of tankers, a lot of helicopter work. There were some Chinooks working the fire, and they were able to keep it small, relatively, 1,000 acres. I, I consider that small. A lot of people would not. But it's all relative, as they say. And lastly, we can't leave out the Northwest or the Pacific Northwest they had the Willow Creek fire this week. Someone hit me up and said, hey, there's a fire out in Oregon. Vail Bureau of Land Management is calling out a smoke report. I thought to myself, oh, okay, grass fire. They got a grass fire out there. It'll probably go a couple hundred acres, and that'll be that. In 24 hours, the Willow Creek fire went 42,128 acres. If you're going to tell me that Central and Eastern Oregon, Washington aren't ready to go... I'm going to laugh because they're having 42,000 acre grass fires now. After a lot of hard work, night shift, rolling attack, engines on it, they're calling it 45% contained. The current cost of that is $200,000. That does it for our operational update. We will move on to the conversation about Granite Mountain and Yarnell, what's happening with Independence Day, fireworks issues, my opinions on that. But first, I'd like to thank all of our paid Substack subscribers and just everybody who subscribes to the Substack. That supports all the firefighter donations that we do, all of the content that we put out, the podcast, the newsletters, all of the social media content. Those paid subscribers are showing their support with just their $6 donations. And with that, you get more podcasts, more articles, workouts, recipes, and that goes into our community fund to help out firefighters and families in need when something tragic happens. We've helped out smoke jumpers. We've helped out hot shots. We've helped out old superintendents who have been diagnosed with cancer, and none of that could be possible without your subscriptions. So thank you to everybody. 
on Independence Day, since we are talking about that today, we are doing a chainsaw giveaway. So on July 4th, everybody who's a paid subscriber is put into a pool. We'll do a drawing, and the person who comes out of that drawing will be shipped a brand new steel chainsaw, and that drawing will take place on the 4th of July. So thanks once again to everybody out there who's a subscriber to our Substack. You can visit us at the Hotshot Wake Up at substack.com. And again, many thanks to everyone out there who offers their hard-earned money, $6 a month, to support this podcast and the content. Now we'll move on to the news. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. I have traveled... So yesterday was the anniversary of the Yarnell Fire, where 19 Granite Mountain hotshots lost their lives. This was a very fast-moving fire, pushing through brush, grass, and was on the home district of Granite Mountain. Now, there's all sorts of opinions on this incident, and I have heard a lot of them. I'm willing to hear more. I have my own. But what can't be argued is that it's a massive, massive tragedy. As we've written about before, after this happened, now current president Joe Biden spoke at the funerals of these individuals and made vast, vast promises about change is coming and we need to support all of our wildland firefighters. It was a big, big deal. It was broadcast nationally on all of the main network channels, and it was one of those unifying moments in our industry. I'm sure a lot of you who were active in Wildland Fire during this event remember where they were when it happened. I was in Colorado. We were doing structure protection on basically a castle at the time. That was our mission on this fire. It was thousands and thousands of acres. I was tasked with scouting the property as the rest of the crew was setting up sprinklers and other things. And I walked quite a distance down a trail along a river and came across a hydroelectric dam. And so I noted that as a value that could be at risk. And then I hiked back to the crew and started talking to the property manager who also lived on the property and was saying, hey, there's a power plant up there. We should probably at least get some GPS points and and figure out if we need to protect this. But I think where it's at right now is good. And then the property manager went on to tell me that it's actually the owner's power plant and this whole castle facility has its own power system. And as we were discussing this, a helicopter came in where there's a a large pond or a small lake in front of this home. And this helicopter stocked this homeowner's pond with brown trout while we were setting up for structure protection. This was a castle. So there was some prep work. We put in some line, and then we made our way back to camp. Now, when we got parked, everybody got cell service back, and people started seeing messages of, hey, are you okay? Where are you? What fire are you on? And the overhead quickly had us line out for chow, 
and we didn't have cell phones allowed while we were eating, so those were all left in the trucks. And as we were standing in the chow line, you could see some of the overhead gazing around. At this point in time, I was a lead on the hotshot crew, and so I bumped to the back of the line where the assistant, the soup, and a couple squatties were, and I was like, hey, like I can feel something. There's something going on. And I was told, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Just eat your food. So I knew there was something up. Like I have a talent of being able to read people. But I got back in line and we sat down in the chow tent. It was very, very quiet in the tent. Everybody was eating. And then a squatty from a different squad sat down next to me. And he obviously was shaken. And I considered myself friends with this individual And eventually he opened up and said, hey, there was a tragedy. Something happened. Like a lot of people died. And I asked him for details. He's like, dude, I don't know the details, but I'm just telling you that something really bad happened. And when we get back to the trucks, we're going to circle up overhead and we're going to have a chat about all this. And that's exactly what happened. We walked back to the trucks. We sat for a while. It started to get around that something happened, but we weren't 100% sure what occurred. So we were circled up. We were told that there was an incident on a fire called Yarnell, and it was assumed that an entire hotshot crew was burned over. We couldn't believe it. You know, how the hell does an entire hotshot crew get burned over? Now that the details have come out, we know the answer to that question. The fire that we were on said that anybody who didn't want to hit the line tomorrow didn't need to, We'd have a moment of silence in the morning and that there would be an operational stand down. Now, that didn't last very long. In the morning, we did have our moment of silence in this camp. And then it was decided that, hey, we're not going to just sit in camp all day. Let's go out and work. Ultimately, was the better option in my mind. Some people didn't agree with that. But hey, there was still work to be done. All of the details were still coming out. And... We can, we can do good here, so let's just not sit and dwell on all of this when we can pop some saws and make some stuff happen. Like I said, I'm sure a lot of you know where you were when this happened, if you were in fire at the time. And when all of these promises were made during the funerals, there was a lot of hope that, this, that the changes that were promised would take place. As you all know, it's been very slow and these things haven't been implemented. And that's why this Tim Hart Act is so important. I still have my hopes for this bill to be enacted into law, but it's becoming very clear moving into this election cycle that it might slow down and it might be used as a wedge and be played as politics once again. We'll see how it all turns out. It's a great bill, but we'll have to see. It is an election year. Now... I've come across a lot of people after Yarnell happened who have some personal opinions, deep personal opinions on this matter. I was in an S class with the individual who had a blown out knee during the time Granite Mountain went to Yarnell. He was a crew member on Granite Mountain, but he was out on injury. He was in one of my S classes years later, and I was being very vocal about my opinion on these fires, not knowing this individual or who he was. 
And kudos to him for speaking up and saying, hey, I have close ties to all of this. And here is my opinion on the matter. The movie had already come out, this Hollywood depiction of Granite Mountain and Yarnell had already come out. And he had a lot of opinions on that production, how the movie was made, what sort of input was given for that movie. He was asked to be a part of the production of this, if I remember correctly. And I won't give you his whole opinion on the matter. If you ever meet this individual, I'm sure he'd be willing to have a conversation with you about it. But he expressed that, yeah, there were some mistakes made and there were some red flags that ultimately were ignored. It was a very eye-opening conversation with this individual. He shared it with the class and we basically stopped the S class to have this conversation. Then I was prepoed down in Arizona, and while I was at a local district office, I came across an individual named Fred. I'm sure some of you know this individual, and it was one of the first things he asked us was, what's your opinion on this fire? So I gave him my opinion, and but also said, hey, I don't want, you know, I wasn't there. I can't quarterback, Monday morning quarterback this thing. But if I was to take a bird's eye view, of course, I can I can nitpick, you know, you hate to. But, you know, if you want to learn something from these incidents, you have to analyze them. And then he went on to say that he was the individual who was suing the federal government over this incident and asking for Freedom of Information Act requests for things such as toxicology reports and were they supposed to be on days off, who made the calls, span of control, who was in charge of who, you know, superintendent of the crew as a single resource while the crew was working. And he had all of these things that he had searched for and received. And he had a large overview and opinion on this matter as well. If you ever come across this individual, he is a wealth of knowledge, Seems like a good guy. Obviously, there is a bias there, but those are some of the most interesting people to talk to if you know their bias, I guess I would say. He had been involved in other incidents as well, a tree strike fatality where he was saying he was the first person on scene. He took a bunch of pictures as the safety officer, and then when the official report came out, he had made it known to myself and another individual who was having this conversation that things had been moved. The, the limb had been moved that came out of the tree. The, he claims the bucket that was pictured wasn't the same bucket that he saw. And by bucket, I mean helmet, safety helmet. And that he felt things had been skewed in the report. This happens. I don't think you can... 100% come out and say, hey, this every report is 100% legit and nothing's been changed. Details get changed. But my whole point being that there is a wide variety of opinions on this tragedy fire. I don't discount any of them until I hear them and can disseminate that information and ingest that information and then myself form an opinion on if this is legit or not. One thing I wanted to discuss coming out of this is PTSD on individuals 
who go through tragedies like this. Blue Ridge Hotshots were there. They were listening to the radio traffic when this all went down. They went and picked up the, the lookout in their UTV. And I know it affected a lot of those guys. And in other incidents, just recently up in Alaska, with the aviation crash that happened, we discussed this in our last Wednesday podcast on the Substack. But I've been talking to individuals up there, and they were sent home without a schism. Now, I don't know if this fell through the cracks or if it just couldn't be logistically handled in time. And if you don't know, a schism is a critical incident stress management team that comes in and basically debriefs you on the incident, gives you a chance to talk about it, and other individuals who have been a part of tragedy fires will implement a conversation about, hey, this is going to affect you, and this is what you can this is what you can expect. Now, most of the people I know, hotshots and smoke jumpers who are still in and have gotten out of fire, have some effects of PTSD. There's great ways to mitigate that. The first thing is to realize what you actually have going on. And I thought I had a lot of the stress that had built up over my career pretty much figured out. I, I think about it a lot. I don't express it openly that much, uh, but I do think about it. I don't try to internalize it, but I, but I do at some points in time. And we've written about this and we've spoken about this before. Preseason, we wrote an article about all of these studies on hallucinogenics and how Harvard, Yale, all of these medical schools, um, Berkeley studies that say used as a therapy, these things can help offload those buried subconscious stressors and memories and get it out into the world to then take some of that weight off your shoulders. I have been very open that I have done this, and so have other people in the hotshot world. A very vocal proponent of this is Ben Strand out in North Ops with El Dorado, and in the off-season, he participated in one of these firefighter stress seminars, I guess I'll call it. On the top of my head, I don't remember what it's called, but I will get that and get it out to you. And then he expressed his experience and how it helped him in a podcast episode later on and just saying how beneficial this all is. Now, the story I'm getting to is on a day off, I went for a run with another individual, smoke jumper, hotshot, just the other day. And I thought to myself, hey, I'm going to take a micro dose which is you don't feel any hallucinogenic effects, but it gets this psilocybin in your system and then it moves its way into your capillaries and into your brain and opens up pathways. Now, this is not just me spewing this. This is proven and there's been all sorts of government studies on this and that's why these things are becoming more laxed and legal in the Western United States. So it was a nice run. We ran on the river, ran down to a lake, turned around, came back up. Then we went to go get some food, and we were sitting on a bench just talking about fire. And I had something occur to me the other day, which was there was an individual who reached out to me. He was on my crew. Officially, he quit. But if I was to be honest, I fired him. But he quit. I felt bad. This individual, I know at the time, was either near rock bottom or at rock bottom. He had a lot going on in his life. And the other day, he reached out to me. And he said, hey, you remind me of an old crew boss I know. 
and I knew who he was. And so I was just like, what's up, man? And he's back in fire. He's doing well. He's holding down a job and he's enjoying himself, it sounds like. And he was thankful for me doing what I'm doing currently. That meant a lot to me because I had thought about this individual over time. And then I started explaining to this individual that I went on the run with, saying, I remember this day vividly, but I, I hadn't talked about this in a very long time. So I started going through that day, and we were on a fire. It was a long hike in. This individual didn't make the hike. This had become a trend, and I had decided with the squad leader, whose squad he was on, that this was it. He's, I, I can't keep him on anymore. So we get back to the trucks and I send the crew off to Chow and I bring the squad leader and this crew member over to my soup truck and we start to have a conversation where I ask this individual, you know, hey, you quit today. You quit. Uh, no, I didn't quit. I didn't quit. And I was like, yes, you did. You quit today. Oh, I'll try better tomorrow. I'll, I'll do better. And I was like, man, I would love to give you a second opportunity, but you you quit. I can't give you a second opportunity because you already quit. Anyway, it was a back and forth for a while and it ended with me saying, hey, pack your gear. Someone will come pick you up in the morning. And then myself and this squad leader went to go walk to Chow. Now on the way to Chow, the squad leader was obviously a little shaken by this all. He had grown to know this individual, is a very nice guy and kind of wanted to give him another chance, but I just treated it like a band-aid, and I was just like, we got to be done. We got to be done. But he was visibly not 100% okay with my decision. Now, as we were waiting in the chow line now, this squad leader turned pale, and he did have some medical issues that were known about before bringing him on the crew, but I worked with him for a while, and I'd never seen any issues with it. So he got his plate of food, went down the stairs, started acting erratically, bumped into a gal, turned around, bumped into a pole, dropped his plate of food, and then started having uh, like a seizure episode on the ground. And I just got done firing a guy. So we run over to see if he's okay. I'm at his side trying to figure this out. I'm looking for an EMT. And at this point in time, I'm just burying everything. I haven't had time to process any of this. And a squad leader, another one, who I have not personally thanked enough for everything that he did, while he was on my crew, he walked up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, dude, we got this. You need to eat, take your plate of food and go to your soup truck. We, we got this dude. Don't worry. He's in good hands. You need to, you need to go decompress. And that's what I did. I went to my soup truck and that's what I did. And I didn't think much of it. But as I was reliving this story on this bench after this run, and I had microdosed a small amount of hallucinogenic mushrooms, and I'm talking small amount. I I started crying, like I I broke down. Not not as in like waterfalls or anything like that, but I had to stop telling my story because I was reliving this day. And obviously I had not processed this as much as I should have. And just thinking back, and mostly the feeling that I felt was gratitude towards this individual who came to me and said, hey man, you just step away. You, you, you've had a day, you just need to step away, get some calories in you, we got this. And I, I'd never really understood how much that meant to me 
until I verbalized it. Point being, this stuff stays with you. We've written about it frequently, and there's ways to cope with this stuff, and there's ways not to cope with this stuff. One of the biggest articles I ever wrote, it was read by like 9,000 people, it was insane, was on the preseason destruction of one's personal life, and again, I took a poll and said, hey, do you know firefighters that destroy their personal life before the season starts? And 87% of firefighters were like, yeah, oh, hell yeah. Everybody detonates their personal life before the fire season starts. That adds up too. So in remembrance of Yarnell and Granite Mountain, a national tragedy, a lot can be learned from this incident. And one thing that we can take is stuff stays with you even when you think you don't even remember these things. But when it comes up, if you don't deal with it, it can build and then again cause problems in your personal life. And you think to yourself, why am I angry right now? Why did I just lash out? I, I can't figure out the reasons for this. There are opportunities that are given in the off-season to cope with these things. Uh, the firefighter wellness retreat, I suggest people look into. But there's a myriad of ways to handle this sort of thing. So I just suggest that you take time to reflect, think about your own career and where you are. What are you holding on to? Do you need to continue holding on to that? Have you actually, on your off time, taken the time to maybe try to talk some of this stuff out with someone that you trust or something like that? I know that this helps. It's proven that it helps. And I suggest folks take this time and opportunity, but especially in the off season, to reflect and think to yourself, what is it that I can let go? I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. As we all should know, Independence Day is coming up on the 4th of July, and I thought we would talk about this just because it's a big subject in the wildfire world right now and just in the media in general, and that is a push by politicians, bureaucrats, people who are environmentally focused, saying, hey, we need to phase out fireworks. We shouldn't have fireworks anymore. And there's, a, there's a, a lot of reasons why they should be phased out, these people say. So I started going through article after article, seeing who's canceling, who's keeping these events happening. And one of the big ones is Flagstaff. So as we know, Flagstaff, Arizona, some big, big fires just this last month. The pipeline, the haywire, the tunnel fire ripped through there. They have officially came out and said, hey, you know what? Even though the monsoons have showed up and our city is flooding, we're not going to have any fireworks. And they've decided to have a laser light show instead. And this seems to be kind of the push that folks are going, is we should just have lasers now. Uh, the San Joaquin Valley out in California has canceled their events. Uh, Castle Rock has canceled their event out in Colorado. Uh, and the big, big one is Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore has again canceled their fireworks. Now, Bill Gabbert with Wildfire Today does a lot of great, great work. 
but he is one of the largest proponents to not have fireworks at Mount Rushmore. He lives in South Dakota, and this is kind of a big thing for him. And he gives all of the reasons that would be given for something like this, which is, hey, we're going to cause a bunch of wildfire. This is a strain on resources up there. We need to stage people for this event. And over the last four years, he even uh, put in like a political pitch, like, hey, this the fireworks and Mount Rushmore are just being used as as politics, you know? And it was very clear that he was against this. He was against it for the whole COVID pandemic, which we'll touch on here in a little bit, because these events have been canceled already for two years because of this COVID thing that's happened over the last couple years. So they've already been canceled because they didn't want these groups showing up for these events. Now, number one, before we move on, Mount Rushmore is just inherently political right? It's a monument of presidents, which in itself kind of just makes it a political monument. I personally have been there over four times. We've stopped there driving to and from fires. I've gone there on my personal time. Uh, A gal and I went there when we were driving across the country and scoped it out. And all in all, it's a great monument. It's a nice place. It's very well taken care of. The forest around it has been project worked out or prepped out and there's great spacing and it's just a good looking healthy forest but once again they're saying hey on independence day we cannot have fireworks at mount rushmore personally i find that a bit disappointing cities that are keeping fireworks on which some would say is a little surprising is santa fe and albuquerque new mexico now again these are places that have seen destructive wildfire just this year But the city managers, county commissioners, and others are saying, hey, you know what? It's Independence Day. On the 4th of July, we're still going to have our fireworks. I can see the argument in some areas where there is five-foot-tall dry grass where you should not be running around with sparklers and shooting off bottle rockets. To me, that seems like common sense. For other people in the population, that common sense doesn't seem to be there. Now, in all of these articles, there's a big push saying, hey, fireworks just are not environmentally friendly on top of the potential for starting wildfires. And they go on to say that, hey, these things are imported from China. There is plastic pieces and pieces of paper that get left everywhere. And this is true. And a responsible steward would pick up after themselves. It's just like if you go out shooting and you shoot targets that aren't metal, you should go pick up your stuff. You know, like it's common courtesy to pick up your trash after you go shooting. But the movement is to move towards laser light shows, and we should just have lasers in the sky, and it can be just as amazing as fireworks. For any of you conspiracy nuts out there who want to see how advanced this laser technology is, just check out Project Bluebeam, which is a declassified laser technology that the CIA and the government were planning on using. And this goes way, way back years and years and years, to where you would even think, hey, laser technology isn't developed even, but you look at this Project Bluebeam and you see, oh my gosh, they have had incredible laser technology for decades and decades. So I don't argue with the fact that a laser light show could be spectacular. But now that the laser light show is going forth in Flagstaff, and other cities will be watching this, the environmentalists have come out and said, you can't have laser light shows because it's too destructive to the local wildlife. 
You're going to have a bunch of owls and birds and foxes, marmots, deer, elk, who are going to freak out because there's a bunch of lasers everywhere, and it's going to be stressful to them, and it could mess up their migratory patterns and breeding patterns if we go forward with this. Hey, that's probably true. Same with fireworks. If fireworks go off, you're probably going to spook some animals. So where do you go from here? What is an alternative? It seems to me, and this may seem silly, but it seems to me that there is a slow creeping push to slowly strip away the celebration and the fun from our Independence Day. Give us one day a year to shoot some fireworks off. Why can't we have that? Again, like I said, when you're in an area where there's cured out grass that's knee high, don't like you shouldn't shoot off fireworks. I'll be the first one to say, hey, if you let a sparkler and your kids are running around in this knee high grass, you're going to cause a lot of problems and you are more than likely going to cause a wildfire. But I think cities, municipalities, monuments can make this happen and make it happen responsibly in a way that we can still celebrate Independence Day. It's fun. It's fun for the kids. It's fun for the adults. It's a spectacle and it's meant it's meant to be awe-inspiring and loud and impressive. Now, if we move all the laser light shows, which I hope doesn't happen, of course it's going to cause controversy because we're being told fireworks are too destructive and not green, but now people are saying that lasers are too destructive and they're also not green. You need batteries and heavy metals for those batteries, which equals mining in Africa, which usually is child labor. In Mongolia and Afghanistan, there's a tremendous amount of minerals there that go into creating batteries. And so the argument is there that that's not green. But hey, what is green anymore? And this is an honest question. Now, I went into a coffee shop the other day, and they asked if I wanted a punch card because they had seen me in there a few times. And I said, sure, you know what? If I buy 10 coffees, I'll get a free coffee. Sure, I'll take a punch card. And she proceeded to hand me an iPad. And I said, oh, I thought I was going to get a punch card. So this kind gal behind the counter went on to tell me that they went green with their punch card system. So I asked her to explain to me, oh, how did you, how did your company or this coffee shop go green? And she said, oh, we're eliminating the paper punch cards because it cuts down too many trees. And now we're doing everything digitally. And so I was in a mood. And if people are around me, they know that sometimes I like having fun with strangers when things like this occur. Feel really bad for the gals that I date because they watch these spectacles. 95% of them find it very hilarious, um, but some of them don't. And I understand why, because I'm kind of being obnoxious. But I asked this young gal, hey, I'm glad you went green because instead of cutting down a tree, all you had to do to make these punch cards was use child labor in China to create this device. The glass was sourced from India, where child labor was used to create that glass. The internal components and the microchips, all of those heavy metals were mined in Africa using child labor. And then all you had to do was launch satellites up into space, which there's not a bunch of space junk up there already. And it's not like we use a ton of rocket fuel to do that. And it's not like these rockets then just come down and land in the ocean and then sink. I'm so glad you decided to go green instead of just using recycled paper punch cards. 
anyway, my point was lost on this gal, and she was just like, oh, okay, well, do you not want the punch card? And I didn't. I didn't take the punch card at that point in time. But they did make a delicious double espresso on ice, which I consumed, and that was great. My point being, what is green anymore? Fireworks aren't green. Laser light shows aren't green. Computer system satellite run punch cards are green, but a recycled paper punch card isn't green. So I just find it all very entertaining now at this point. I don't get all worked up about it. I see the propaganda on one side. I see the propaganda on other side, and I laugh. But what I do think to myself is, is we should still celebrate Independence Day, and if you can responsibly shoot off fireworks, I think you should. It's coming up. I think you should enjoy it, and you should enjoy it with your family. Eat some barbecue. Have yourself a drink. And try to think about how our country was created the rights that were founded and given to us, but if you know, they weren't given to us because if you read the Declaration, they are God-given rights and they cannot be taken away. That's what this day is about. But I see every year, and it's increasing more and more, that, hey, maybe we shouldn't just celebrate anymore. We need to end the tradition. Tradition needs to end. Culture is built and held together by tradition. There's traditions all around the world. Yes, some traditions are good and some traditions are bad. But all in all, a tradition that brings people together and is family-friendly and brings joy and happiness should be continued. Even if it's somewhat controlled, I guess, in extreme fire areas. But we can pull off fireworks at Mount Rushmore. You're going to tell me we can't have fireworks at Mount Rushmore? It is what it is. But my point being... Go out and enjoy yourself on the 4th of July. Hey, that's the show for today. Thanks again to all the Substack subscribers. $6 for the paid members. Supports everything we do, all of the donations. When you get time off, check in on your friends, your homies. Ask how they're doing. Stretch. Hydrate. When you get the chance, quality calories are the ones that count. And when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh -huh.